part five of our Joshua series, we entitled the message, uh, Living on Holy Ground. And I want to begin with a quote. On your sheet, there are two quotes. Um, this is neither one of them. I got a different one for you. So if you'd like to just kind of jot down some notes, uh, feel free to do that. This quote is by a Chinese Bible teacher by the name of Watchman Nee. He said this, and it was, it was intriguing. He said, not until we take the place of a servant can he take his place as Lord. In the year of servanthood, this is what we're trying to do. Is put God back in His rightful place. Um, if you need a Bible this morning, please raise your hands. We're handing out Bibles to you. Um, if you have Bibles, obviously take them out, put them on your lap. We're going to be looking at those in just one second. But I noticed that the team was coming forward. So keep your hands up until you get a Bible. And I want to begin with a concept. The concept is this. Too many of us have reversed the process of the Christian life. We have basically thought, I need to go home after getting saved, and I gotta think of a whole bunch of cool stuff I have to do for God. I gotta think of everyone that I need to get saved, and I have to go figure out a way to get them all saved. That is not at all what God said. Um, that is way too much weight that we'd be carrying on our shoulders. As a matter of fact, the Bible is quite different in how it engages with how we should live. And it says this, I want you to prepare for me to move and all bring the power. That's what God says. I want you to live in such a way that I might move unhindered in your life and all do the heavy lifting, all do the work. I will guide you in places. I will guide you in discussions. There's all these verses throughout that tell the disciples, and it said, I don't want you to worry when you go before kings. I don't want you to worry when you get arrested and brought before the magistrates, because I will give you the words to say when it's time. It didn't say that, now, all of you, I want you to sit down, I want you to plan out the best way to reach this city. That's not what he said. Now, are plans good? Sure, plans are good, as long as they're loose in the sense to allow God to adjust them. But we end up thinking everything is on us. It's not. You're joining in with what God is already doing. And as we are God chasers here in this church to try to go find out what is God doing? Where is God moving? Where should Bridgeway be? That's how we design what we're doing the following year. A lot of people ask me all the time about vision in this church. Oh, what's the vision for the church? What are we going to do? How's it all going to work over the next five years? My answer is incredibly disappointing. I have no idea. <laughs> Weren't you the visionary? Yeah. Sorry. There's a bunch of different ways we can do this. We can either have an idea in our minds that we concocted and force it through. Or we can make sure that at all times we are prepped and ready for each and every individual calling that God whispers to us. We believe in this church that the way we're going to look five years from now is going to be different than the way we look today. I wouldn't even know how to begin to tell you exactly what that's going to look like. And I'm alright with that. 
Now, are there certain consistent themes that go throughout the years? Yes. There are core beliefs that we hold very tightly to because they're core beliefs in Scripture that are unchanging. Things like truthfulness and honesty. Those are unchanging. We're not going to morph those. But when it comes down to the method of how things have to be done, wow, Jesus will change those very easily. So we remain very open and our goal as elders and pastors is to constantly go before the Lord and say, God, what do you want from us? What are we doing? Where are you moving us? What do you want to say to us? What do you want to say through us? So much of our job is listening. And I think that's why it's more healthy than it could be. The fill in the blank in the sheet in front of you is this. Daily Christian life is preparation for God to move. Daily Christian life is preparation for God to move. The very concept and core of being a servant is to check in in the morning with your master and say, Master, what are we doing today? Along throughout the day, it's, Master, am I doing what you've desired of me? And at the end of the night is to say, Master, have I served you well? If not, what can I do to adjust tomorrow that I might serve you better? If we do not have the humility and the heart of a servant, we're not going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. That's just the bottom line. Today, as we join in on the ventures of Joshua... And the Israelite people. Wow, this is a leader that knows that concept. Joshua is a servant through and through. He lives, eats, breathes it. He's been doing it all of his life. Now, moving up in the years of his life. Remember, he was 40 when he spied out the land. Now he's about 80. And he's still leading with all diligence, with all humility. But with all the power that God would bring him. But at no time is Joshua trying to force his own agenda. He's waiting on the Lord. And he's listening to his voice. Remember, Israel has now come up to the promised land. They've crossed over the Jordan River in this mighty miracle where the water's literally cut off on one side and drained out so they could march through. And the minute they got through, the water started again. All the enemies are watching. And now they're about to launch into a season of warfare. They're about to go into a very heavily guarded, a very powerful groups of people that know how to do warfare. Probably better than these Israelites who have been raised in slavery or at least raised in the desert. As they come walking through, which is about two million people, as they begin to herd through into this promised land, the first place they have to face is a place called Jericho. Jericho, this intense two walls, walls eight, ten feet thick. This whole impregnable, you can't get in no matter what you do. You can't batter ram it. You can't get through it. And here are the Israelites with little to no weaponry that is advanced. Joshua has the charge to lead these people to victory. He's got almost no resources. 
And that's where we pick up the story. And the preparation that God has for him is absolutely bizarre. Would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 5, verse 1? Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Let's see, in the Bibles uh, that were handed to you, do we know what page that is? What's that? 154. 154. I wrote down all the other page numbers and forgot that one. Page 154. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. We're just going to read the first verse, then we'll pray for the word, and then we'll dive in. It says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Man, what a turn of events. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we live in such a way that you would be able to do what you want to do. That, Father, whether it's here at Bridgeway or in our homes, that it would be here on earth as it is in heaven. That, Lord, when you issue a command, when you want to reach a region, that, Father, we would be those people that would say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. God, transform our hearts and allow us to have ourselves ready and prepared for what you have next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go through this. Um, Once again, let me see if I can't draw a a little visual map here for you. So imagine that there's a a map on the wall, and on one side, on the left-hand side, we have the huge Mediterranean Ocean. Now, on that coast, we have a series of things. There's Egypt down below, and then there's the, the area that we call Israel. Above that is Syria. And then it starts moving into Turkey. And then as you sweep around the top, that's when you start hitting Greece. So in the whole Mediterranean area... Um, We have coastline. Now, as you move across to the right in your map, there's a line that goes right down the middle. That happens to be the Jordan River. It attaches the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus grew up and did his ministry, all the way down to the Dead Sea. On the right-hand side, it begins to move out towards Asia. All right? So this is where we're at on the map. So the Israelites came up around the right-hand side and began to cross through to the left or to the west. They went through, had one battle right before the river, set some of their people down, and now they've marched through the river to the left, heading towards the coast. Now they have the area that we know familiarly today as Israel. It's not a huge piece of property, but it's sizable enough, and it is the promised land for the Jewish people. So as they come marching through, it's about to address the general groups in the middle and the groups on the coast. That's who it talks about right up front. It says this. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, and Amorite means Westerner, means all the different groups, people groups, and all the Canaanite kings, the Phoenician people on the coast, when they all heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, Their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. How'd they hear about this? CNN's not there. Right? How'd you find out? Literally, it happened just yesterday. So how in the world did all these nations find out that out in the middle of the desert... Now, granted, it's a sizable group. When two million people move, you probably notice. 
However, it's not like you could see, what, five miles away. So a lot of them, how would they ever know that the Israelites are even coming through? Because word travels fast, especially to the paranoid, yeah? Gossip travels fast, especially among the paranoid, right? We all of a sudden know on the things that we want to know. We hear about things very rapidly. There are things that will occur here in church that by the time I get home, my wife can greet me at the door and go, so this happened before I can drive home. Why? Communication travels very, very rapidly. Now, imagine a people that are used to being conquered. They're a bit paranoid about what's going on. But as they're watching, they're sending out spies and the enemy is always watching. And they're examining to see what's happening. All of a sudden they see them move across and the water dries up in front of them. They come across. That's going to affect a lot of people. And words spread very fast. And it says, and their hearts melted. And they no longer had the courage to face who? Israelites. Really? Okay, does everybody remember the story of what happened 40 years before? God said, I would like you to go into the promised land and take it over. And they said, no, we're not because we're scared, right? So these guys are scared of these guys. Now these guys are scared of these guys. Everybody's scared of everybody. And there's a reason why when the Israelites went in, they went, no way. They, they have too many swords. The way I'm looking at the scenario, I, we can't do this. They bailed out and had to wander the desert for 40 years. Now all of a sudden... All the people in that land turn around and they see that God's a part of it. And they said, we can't beat God. You know, it's interesting because God has a really interesting way of doing warfare. He's really into psych ops. Everybody know what those are? <laughs> Psychological operations. There are all these stories in the Old Testament where literally the enemy never even gets engaged with by the Israelites. They just start freaking out and attacking each other and kill each other. God does the weirdest type of warfare. He's got things where angels are ripping wheels off chariots. He's got stuff where hailstones are falling from the sky. I mean, the stuff that God can do in warfare is bizarre. But if God is on your side, who should you fear? It's almost as if the Israelites were beginning to get that. You would think that they'd have more faith, but wouldn't you think we would have more faith? After what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We don't. But now, all the enemy is afraid. But make no mistake, they're in the shadow of one of the largest citadels of the plains, Jericho. With an enemy king that wants them wiped off the map. And while they sit and watch these desert people move in. They're thinking what they can do if they have any opportunity to destroy the Jews. And then God comes up with this plan. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, by the way, how is he talking to Joshua? Anybody know? Probably in the tabernacle, that movable church thingy, right? The little tent. He'd go in and hang out with God and God would communicate to him. He wasn't talking to everybody. He was talking to Joshua. Joshua had to convey God's will to everybody else. Imagine the pressure on that. Everyone else is going, no, God didn't say that. You're like, yeah, he did. No, he didn't. No, I was there. Well, I didn't hear him. 
right? This is tough. It's tough to lead these people. But then God said to Joshua, I want you to make flint knives and I want you to circumcise the Israelites again. I'm sorry, what's that? Well, I would like you to make flint knives. You know how to make flint knives? Yeah. I want you to circumcise them with flint knives. We have metal knives. Doesn't matter. I want you to make flint knives. Really, we're just going to make them. And then, we're, whoops, nice. I just bumped my. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh. No. This happens to me every time. All right, we back on? Yeah. Okay, good. I want you to make flint knives. I want you to circumcise your lights again. Now, the first question that should pop up in your mind is how do you circumcise someone again? All right? That's probably not your first question. It was mine. <laughs> now, you're going to find out why, but we need to address this issue. We're about to read a huge passage on circumcision. It's going to involve everything else. So let's go through the basics. A lot of you have no idea what this is. So, for the sake of the audience, we're going to try to calm this down. Last night, you learned way too much. All right, here we go. You want that CD? It's like a CD in anatomy. So, so the idea is that there's like all this extra skin that the guys are, that are born with, right? This whole idea that then they decide to cut them off. Circumcision comes from the Latin word, means to cut around. They then cut off the extra skin... And that's called the foreskin. They then throw that away or bury it, depending on what your culture is. And then that way, so as the guys grow up, they look very different from one to another. Right? Are we all clear on this? All right. Now, circumcision did not originate with the Jews, which is so funny because after all this time, I've been teaching Bible for the longest time. For some reason, I thought it did. How ignorant was that? I'm going through all this research on circumcision back and forth and all over the place. And I'm learning all this stuff. And I realized it was absolutely, what, maybe thousands of years before the Jews ever came to be. It's in the Egyptian empire. There's even literally cave drawings from 2800 B.C. of circumcision. I'm thinking, really, that's what you drew on a cave? Really, out of all the stuff you could have drawn, right? You only have a few crayons. It's a small cave and you had to draw that. But anyway, they drew that. The Egyptians, a lot of them held it for the upperclassmen and for the fancier guys. And some cultures, most cultures, did it for initiation rites. They would do it for adolescents. However, the Jews were different. They did it for specific religious reasons, and they did it as infants. All males were to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's totally different than the other cultures. The other cultures would wait till they would grow up for a little while, and then it was kind of a manhood thing. But understand, it was, it's in the Australian Aborigines background. It's in parts of Africa. It's all over the world. It was not just the Egyptians. It was not just the Jews. As a matter of fact, and now it does come through the same religious line, but do you realize that it's predominant in Muslims? Everybody clear on that one? Not something you normally ask a Muslim, right? You just kind of have to know that through the books. But that's something that went down through that line as well. So a lot all over the world, the reason why the circumcision rates around the world are higher is because of the Muslim population, because they're so numerous. Now in America, things basically launched over here 
late 1800s, in 1896, a book was published about this idea where it was recommended for infant boys. For a bizarre reason, I'll let you know, which we're not going to talk about. Totally inaccurate. However, they started doing that, and it was pretty much the norm for America until 1971. Which is funny, the same year that I was born. Weird. In 1971, the uh, American Pediatric Association came out and said, we see no health benefit to circumcision, so we're no longer going to make it a recommended routine operation for all males. Now, there's been arguments throughout the rest of the time ever since then for the last 38 years. There's been arguments whether it has health benefits or doesn't have health benefits. Some people do it for hygiene reasons. Other people do it because of help in transmission of HIV and AIDS. There's a bunch of arguments. The World Health Organization and the CDC thinks one thing. Other organizations think another. So sure, not everybody knows exactly what it means. But what's intriguing is even after there's a massive decline amongst American males of circumcision, it's still over 60%. This is something that's in our culture, and what's intriguing is that we have so many little babies that show up in this church, I periodically get emails. Pastor Lance, we had a son. What do you think about circumcision? So I'll go through this dialogue and begin to discuss this. What does the Bible say? The Old Testament says if you don't get circumcised, you're cut off from God. Is that really what it says now? Well, as it began to go through, remember... The point was always someone's heart. Are we clear on that? Even in Deuteronomy, Old Testament, old school stuff, God said, I want you to circumcise your heart. I want you to cut out the garbage that is in your life and I want to be your all. So even way back in the Old Testament, it was always about the heart. But the outside visual sign was a contract. So that there would be a visible representation, just like we take a visible representation of what Jesus did on the cross with communion. There was a visible contract for the Jewish people. Now, even though other people groups around them were circumcised, that's, that doesn't mean that it didn't matter for them. Remember, when David went up against Goliath, he insulted him and called him what? Uncircumcised. Because it was rare that the Philistines were not out of all those people groups. So he was messing with him about this very issue. If you don't know what it is, and you don't know why it's done, you're going to miss a whole bunch of the Old Testament discussion. That's why we're even camping on this. So, by the time we get to the New Testament, the Jews had made everything about the external, nothing about the heart. They made everything about, well, we have Abraham as our father, we're circumcised, we should get everything God has. So there. And God was heartbroken. And God said, you know what? We're not doing that anymore. So I'm going to tell you this. And through the New Testament, he began to realize, just because you have Abraham as your father does not make you Israel. And they're like, what? Of course it does. No, it doesn't. It's always been a heart issue. doesn't matter if you're circumcised, uncircumcised. The point is, do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? That's what it's always been about. As a matter of fact, it says this in the New Testament. It says, 
Nevertheless, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Then he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. That's why we stand where we do. But make no mistake, to the Jews in the Old Testament, circumcision was incredibly important. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17 and I'll show you how it was rolled out to them. We look at it from a New Testament mindset. By the way, it's page 11 in the Bible's handed to you. First book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. We look at it from a New Testament perspective and we start going, why are we talking about this? It's not a big deal. Okay, if you are, if you aren't, it's not an issue. It was to the Jews. God literally set up a command that if they did that, they would be in His blessing. If they did not, they would be under a curse. I mean... It was that severe. Here's what God laid down for Abraham. Remember, Abraham is the first Jew. From him, all Jewish people came about. Genesis 17:1. When Abram, that used to be his name. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me... This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And I will make you very fruitful and I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. Go to verse 8. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, a foreigner. The exact same territory Joshua is leading them in right now. In the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, go to verse 10, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. Verse 22. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Do you see how severe that is? You will be cut off. But now, with all that background, let's read the story of Joshua. It says this. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. You know what that means? Hill of foreskins. Something really cool about the Jews. 
Whenever they need to name a location, they're pretty much straightforward. What do you guys want to call this place? Let's call it Hill of Foreskins. All right. Well, let's move on. Fantastic. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, meaning 40 years earlier, all the men of military age, 20 and older, they died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. You go, what are you, what are you trying to say? I'm saying that this very major covenant with God. Remember, all eight-year-old males are circumcised. If not, they're cut off from the blessing of God. Stopped. For 40 years. All the wandering in the desert. This whole covenant was on pause. Do you understand? Here's the other intriguing thing. What is one of the most major celebration festivals you can think that the Jews do every year? Passover. Here's the rule. No one uncircumcised can have Passover. Oops. What did they not do for 40 years? Passover. Okay, to the Jews, this is a very significant event. They stopped it all. Everything was held. Right here, the pause is let go, and God's blessing begins to flow. This is a massive, momentous event. It says the Israelites had moved about in the desert for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. That means the youngest was 60 since they had not obeyed the Lord for the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you remember that story? Why did God not allow them to get into the promised land? Why did he make that whole generation die off? Anybody remember that? Part of it was in a place called Kadesh Barnea. When they came in, they were whining and complaining against God. They were saying, God's not a good provider. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. And they didn't have any water. And they began to get panicky. And they began to attack leadership and say, why have you brought us out here? God doesn't even love us. Now, these are the same people who saw the Red Sea part. They're the same people that were released out of Egypt by miraculous means, yet they did not hold on to their faith, and they consistently grumbled against God, just like us. Are we any different? After what Jesus did on the cross, you would think that we would live differently, but we don't. We doubt and we complain and we whine and we constantly grumble against God. God, this isn't right and this isn't right and this isn't right. Finally, God said, you know what? Enough. We're not doing this anymore. No matter what I do for you, it's not enough. I have loved you. I have cared for you. I have provided for you. Right now, you're eating manna, which is Literally bread from heaven. I'm making stuff appear in your world just so you'll stay alive. I provided quail for you when there were no birds around. I provided all types of things for you throughout the desert to provide for you. I've made water come out of a rock and it doesn't matter to you. Your heart is hard and I can't get through. You're done. You're not getting in the promised land. You're not seeing my blessing. We're not playing this. 
anymore. I will keep you marching until you die. Those people would not get in, and neither would Moses. Only two of the original got in. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb, who this story is about. Let's move on. So, he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they hadn't been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. I think so. Now, according to the timeline here, they're going to give them four to five days to heal. I literally looked up stuff all over the place about how long it takes to heal from circumcision as an adult. And they say four to six weeks. You've got to be careful. These guys got four to five days, right? And I'm not thinking it's the most sterile of environments. I'm not thinking that this is the best of surgical tools. This is, hey, I've got a rock. That's pretty much what we're dealing with, right? All of them. I need you to understand the amount of faith Joshua needed to have to do this. Why? You just knocked out your whole military fighting force. Are we all clear on what just happened? And who's watching you? Your enemies, waiting for any opportunity to kill you. Now they're sitting there observing and all their warriors are done. This is the same exact ploy that what? The sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel did to wipe out another group. They told them all to get circumcised and while they were in pain, came in and killed them all. It's already in the book. Joshua had so much faith in God is he said, all right. But how weird is this to prepare for warfare this way? Bizarre? Only if you look at it from man's standpoint. It's a terrible strategic plan. However, God doesn't do warfare like that. God says, I want your heart right, I want your lives right, I'll take care of the rest. Are we okay with that? And what he is about to do didn't need them to be at tip-top shape. He's about to knock the walls down himself. Let's take a look back at the story. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day, which means roll or it means circle. What does he mean I've rolled away the reproach? Some people say it was because the Egyptians mocked them. It was because they said when they couldn't get into the promised land the first time they were embarrassed. But now they get to go in. Whatever it was, God said, the past is the past. We're moving on. You're clean. You're ready to go. Let's fight. Pick up the next verse. It says this. On the evening of the 14th day of the month. Ooh, that's an important day. At twilight, all the Passover lambs are slaughtered. That evening, they are roasted and eaten for the Passover celebration. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. They haven't done that since the mountain of Sinai. Can you imagine how much of a party that was? They finally get to do it after all this time. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, which was unleavened bread, bread without yeast, and roasted grain. 
the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate of the produce of Canaan. For 40 years, they ate manna. And they cross through and the minute they break into the new land, God goes, don't need that anymore. We're good. And they began to eat of the new land. What we are about to close with is the most powerful passage of the whole morning. It is one of the few times, in my opinion, that Jesus Christ shows up in the Old Testament. Let's take a look. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. All right. I want you to picture what this would be like. Joshua is out by himself for some unknown reason. It appears likely that he knows they have to fight Jericho, so he's walking as a military leader, checking out the area, trying to figure out strategy, figuring out what may God want to do. He may well have had his head down as he was walking, as he was praying, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he sees somebody's watching him. He lifts up his head, and there's a guy standing there with a sword drawn. If you have a sword drawn... That means you're ready to fight. Joshua then has to put his hand on his sword and say what? Who are you? But notice how he asked the question, because this will be how you and I view the world. And it's wrong. Here we go. He said this. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Isn't that how we see the world? You're either on my team or you're on their team. You're either on my side of the political aisle or you're on their side. You're either in my camp or you're in their camp. We love to have these dividing lines. We love to put everything nice and neat in these categories. Enemy, me. Right? Because everyone other than you is the enemy. You couldn't possibly be the enemy. We begin to pray absolutely bizarre prayers like, God, help my football team to win. What? What are you talking about? Like, God is with the one team that has God's colors. Right? Oh, God, and we pray for our, our high school teams. Help us to win. What? What, because we have more Christians on our team? That's how it's going to work? That's the other team. This is the foolishness that we live in every day. Are you on my team or are you on everybody else's team? Jesus gives the most amazing answer. What does he say? That's right. Neither. What do you mean neither? I'm not on your team. I'm not on their team. I'm on my team. Are you on my team? Right? It's a big shift in focus. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Amen. That's right. Is God on your team? No. No, he's not. Actually, came to church to get encouraged. Sorry. God's not on your team. Because you keep trying to draw a line about you and them, right? Oh, there's Bridgeway and then there's other churches, right? There's our team and there's their team. 
foolishness. The only way that matters is God's team. And sometimes Bridgeway is on God's team, and sometimes we're ignorant. And sometimes other churches are on God's team, and sometimes they're ignorant. The only thing that matters is God's team. Right? So we have to ask ourselves every day, not God, are you going to be with me? But God, can I come be with you? Whole different ballgame. Neither. I'm not on your team. You're on my team. That would change a lot of divisions that are happening in the world that are silly. Then, he's sitting down in front of him and once he realizes it's God... He falls face down in absolute adoration, worship, and humility. Can't even stand up in the presence. Do you know who just fell down? The commander of the army of God. Really? That's what he thought. Till about two seconds ago. And he just met who? The commander of the army of God, right? And it was like, but I'm a... Here, gives him his... (laughs) Right? His little label, you know? He's kind of like, oh, righty, you're him. And he hits the deck because he's not in charge. He's never been in charge. You look at any pastor, they're not in charge. They've never been in charge. Automatically he hits the ground and he says, what do you want your servant to do? That's all I am. And you would imagine that he's waiting for the coolest strategic plan. Lay that thing out on the sand, right? Begin to start drawing diagrams. You'll attack from here and then we'll do this, right? And God goes, can you take your shoes off, please? My my shoes? Yeah, take them off. Why? Is there something strategic about that? (laughs) Right? And he's like, no. I'd just like you to take your shoes off. You're standing on my ground. And we take off our shoes on my ground. All right. Takes his shoes off. He was there. To train up under a man who this happened to last time. Joshua's best friend, Moses. Moses is walking through the desert with sheep. And he comes across a burning bush. He gets near and a voice comes out. And it tells him to take off his shoes. Why? Because it's holy ground. So I ask you this. Is it holy ground... Where Moses saw the burning bush? Or is it holy ground where Jesus showed up as a commander of the army of God right near Jericho? Which one's holy ground? Wherever God is. Yeah? What would it be like to live on holy ground? Wherever you go, God is there. Welcome to the reality of the Christian life. Wherever we walk, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Wherever we move, holy ground is moving with us. I think that should make a difference. There was this quote by Warren Wearsby that I read in a commentary and I wrote it down. He said this. He said, Joshua was standing in heathen territory. Yet because God was with him, he was standing on holy ground. If we are obeying the will of God, no matter where He leads us, we are on holy ground. And we better behave accordingly. Are we living in the constant presence of Jesus Christ? That you know He's here. That you know He's with you. Hmm. 
When we get up in the morning, it's the same question Joshua asked. What does my master have for his servant? What do you want, God? Sometimes God's going to go, you know what? I need a change in your heart. Can you take off your shoes, please? It'd be great. But God, we're about to go to warfare. Don't we put on our shoes for warfare? Not in my world, you don't. I don't know, unless you want your shoes on while you watch me knock the walls down. That'll make you feel better. Do you understand that in preparation for their first greatest battle, God had them get circumcised and take their shoes off? Man, God's weird. Because God knew that it was His battle. And the only thing that needed to get right with His people was their hearts. And it's no different today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You, Lord, that we might be called Your servants, that we might be called Your kingdom. That, Lord, even right here we are standing and sitting on holy ground. As your body gathers together, this is a holy place. When we vacate, it's just a building. But when you're here, everything changes. Lord, I pray that when we go home, we would know that we are walking on holy ground. That when we drive, we are driving with holy ground. For wherever you are, it is. Lord, help us to submit to your authority and be who you want us to be. Prepare our hearts that you might do amazing things. In Jesus' name, amen.